Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am still joined remotely by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. Hey, Cash. <laughs> not, not the most energetic start from Wolfond here, but... Uh... You know what, man? I, I'm trying to train myself to sleep on my side. I've always been a stomach sleeper, and it's like... Same! And it's causing me, like, all these back problems, and... Same. Yeah, so I mean, you you know like how difficult it is, right? Like it's not an easy transition. I'm so used to like always sleeping on my stomach. And yeah, because sleep, stomach sleeping is by far the most comfortable sleep a human being can attain. Thank you. Yeah. And people, people anyway. that aren't stomach sleepers don't understand that <laughs> if you've spent your entire life sleeping on your stomach, which is the level of comfort is on just, it's a luxurious sleep, essentially. <laughs> if you go from doing that, um, to having to sleep like I guess a normal person, which is on their side or on their back, it's definitely better for your back, no doubt. Because I think we both probably have lower back issues from decades of sleeping on our stomach. But yeah, it's it's very hard to do that once you've trained yourself. You don't even need to train yourself to sleep on your stomach because, like I said, it's a luxurious sleep. It's just yeah, it's magical. I know. So I've had like lower back issues, but I've also recently like developed a really bad upper back issue so oh, no. that's I'm, I'm like sleeping on my stomach but also sleeping with my head on two pillows rather than just one so i've been advised to both start sleeping on my side and sleeping with only one pillow under my head and i'm just like not getting good sleeps like i understand that it's gonna be good for my back in the long run but for now it's like uh, a very tough transition so if I'm not energetic enough on, on this morning recording, you can blame the back specialist I've been seeing. <laughs> well, no, we need, we need your back in tip-top shape so you can uh, pick up and carry the, the little Pacers fan that's on the way oh, you know, man. in a couple months. Yeah. Um, but you know what I actually did? I, I, at one point, started, and I still do it to this day, sleep on my stomach without a pillow. Without so a pillow that, under your head? Correct. Because the worst, the the thing that screws your back when you sleep on your stomach is like the the weird like arch you're putting in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you get you eliminate the pillow, it's it's not as bad for you. But then you eliminate the pillow. It's it's fine. You get a good mattress, man. If sleeping on your stomach with a pillow is the most luxurious, like ten out of ten sleep, I would say then sleeping on your stomach without a pillow is the second ranked sleep. And the most luxurious of the side or back sleeps is still like 15 spots behind even sleeping <laughs> on your stomach without a pillow. It, it's just so. Yeah, I'm trying it, like it, all kinds of different things to jerry rig it and make it more comfortable, like the pillow between the legs, like pillow under my arm, and it's just not doing it for me. So, All right. Well, I think now that we've discussed you accosting pillows, uh, we can move on to some NBA talk this week. Um, and and there's a couple things we're going to talk about this week, or more like a couple teams and kind of a couple extensions that we're going to fill today's episode with. But before we do that, I did want to ask you a couple questions. Okay. And the first one is, do you have any thoughts at all on Paul Pierce's wild night last weekend and his subsequent firing from ESPN? I don't really. Like, I... I... <laughs> I'm not the first person to uh, espouse this feeling or like it, it's not an original thought, but I feel like if Paul Pierce was going to be fired, it ought to have been for his absolutely miserable analysis and just like the hack work that he has put out there on the airwaves for the last however many years he's been doing this for, where he's just like clearly not doing any of his homework and... Yeah. Like, that would have been, I think, justifiable. As it is, like, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I don't have an issue with what he did, frankly. Like, I think, you know, that we should definitely be trying to destigmatize anything relating to, you know, whether it's sex work or exotic dancing, like, whatever it happens to be. Like, I'm a sex positive person and I don't, like... I understand ESPN being prudish about that kind of stuff and, and for him to have publicized it the way that he did, like, I guess I I can see from a kind of branding perspective, them feeling like it was a bad look. I definitely don't think he deserved to be fired for that, but that's my take. 
Yeah, I, I just thought the whole situation was hilarious. I'm with you in that he was a hack analyst. I think his hack analysis and his eagerness to troll fan bases has actually made him so hated by so many fan bases that I think he's actually become a super underrated legend. Like I think a lot of people who hate Paul Pierce because of the hack analysis, because of the trolling, actually forget or maybe just aren't aware of like how good he was at one point and and how much fear he used to cause in opposing fans' minds because of his actual basketball play, you know, and his like yeah. big shot making. Well, stuff. I don't think but, any uh, Raptors fans need that reminder. No, no, I, I don't think so either. Uh, this also is a tease to the fact that the next episode of the story behind on our YouTube page may or may not be the truth. And uh, yeah, Ooh. Raptors fans especially might have a tough time watching that. But no, what, what I was going to say is I actually, um, I, I'm convinced that he wanted to get fired. And I don't say that because I think partying with exotic dancers means you should get fired. I don't. I, I agree with everything you said. I just think if you look like... The fact that he did do that on an Instagram live stream, whether he meant to or not, the fact that even the next morning he was tweeting like, oh, good morning. Like He seemed to be very trolly about it. And then the fact that he was just ready with a video about him laughing, saying stay tuned for my next or whatever he said once he got fired. To me, it seemed like a guy that either wanted to get fired or knew he was about to be on the outs anyway. And because he's Paul Pierce just doesn't give a crap. But I mean, I I had tweeted this, but I I think the rankings of iconic Paul Pierce one-liners now goes number three. That's why they brought me here. Number two, I called game. Mm. Number one, she's from Istanbul's. <laughs> We've been to Turkey's before. So shout out Istanbul's turkeys. And uh, I think that brings us to the next question I had for you before we get to the meat, unless you have any other Paul Pierce related thoughts for me today. Dude, I think you covered it. I was <laughs> And uh, the, the second question I have for you before we get to the meat and potatoes of this podcast. As you sat there last night watching Clippers Suns. Oh God, I knew this was coming, man. <laughs> how despondent and or fearful were you that you were watching the beginning of the next great in your mind tragic playoff rondo run i tweeted that i think you will legitimately have an aneurysm if playoff rondo shows up again yeah no i've already muted the words of playoff rondo on my twitter timeline um he he had an amazing game man and i gotta say i was not a fan of the deal that they made rondo had frankly been terrible in atlanta and you know they were sort of conceding a measure of flexibility with that trade as well, right? Because Rondo's on the books for seven and a half million next season, whereas uh, Lou Will was expiring. They gave up picks in the deal as well. It just didn't seem... And I understand that, like, Rondo in in, in certain playoff situations is going to be more playable. Like, I got it from that perspective. I just didn't think he was going to be playable enough that it really made sense for them to take on that extra year. But... I, I promised myself I wasn't going to do this again, you know, get hoodwinked again by him just utterly dogging it through the majority of the regular season before cranking it back up again after he did exactly that for the Lakers last year. But you could definitely start to see how it makes sense and, and why they went out to get him, right? Because down the stretch of that game, he was organizing their offense his playmaking was huge for them. He hit a huge three because that's the thing that he can do, I guess, when they really need him to. As again, he showed in the playoffs last year with the Lakers when I think he shot over 40% from deep. If they can get that kind of performance out of him, it doesn't even have to be consistently, right? It's like if they get get a game like that from him every third game in the playoffs, that trade will pay off and I will once again eat my words. And it's so funny, too, because like, you know, you mentioned our YouTube channel and I I scripted a whole video about how Playoff Rondo is a real thing. And we all have to just come to grips with that. And then he had this terrible start in Atlanta and I didn't even take my own advice. But I even like threw out in that script the Clippers as a team that could really use him for all of those reasons, you know, needing that offensive organizer and getting a chance to kind of move Kawhi and PG off of the ball and I think he he demonstrated that last night, and we'll see if he can carry that forward. Yeah, the the whole Rondo thing at this point, it's like it's either 
the biggest coincidence I've ever seen, or as you said, we like you just have to accept the fact that this guy is one of the the great big game players in in recent memory. Like it's got to be one or the other. I mean, at this point, it's not like okay, yes, he he is a big game player, but it's like when he is raising his level at this stage of his career, he's raising it to the point that he is like a league average or slightly above <laughs> league average backup point guard. Right. You know what I mean? It's not like right. he was playing like transcendent basketball. He's just gone from being like a sub replacement level point guard to one who's like, oh, wow, you like this is a solid backup PG. Yeah. And for the Clippers, I mean, that's that's all they really need him to do. Yeah. Like they, they were never going to get a starting caliber point guard like with right. the assets that they had. That just wasn't realistic for them. So this might have been the best that they could do. Again, I wasn't a fan of the move at the time, but. I, I'm willing to be proven wrong. Like, if there's one thing that you know about me, Cash, I, I'm never afraid to to say when I'm wrong. I, I often really like being proven wrong because I, I learn new things and I, I like having my mind changed about stuff. So that's that's just one of those things over the years that is like I, I was skeptical of it for so long, and I, I guess I'm just a convert at this point. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I, I will say too that there, like, there are a lot of teams that, you know, if their sub replacement level guys all became average to solidly like above average players in the playoffs, like their entire season, like the trajectory of their ceilings and their seasons would drastically change. So well, I completely agree with you. It's not like he's you know elevating his game to the point where he's like an all star level player again in the playoffs, but even just like where he's taking it to where he gets to in the playoffs is a significant improvement at a time of the year when the margins between winning and losing are so small. Definitely. And he does give them a a necessary kind of North South element that they have been missing. And that's something we've talked about. Like we bring it up pretty much every time we talk about the Clippers, right? Which is how jump shot reliant they are. And yeah. how they need somebody who can give them a little bit more rim pressure. And I do think Rondo gives them that to a, to a certain extent. You know, I don't think he's changing their life in that regard, but he does give them a little bit of a different look and we'll, we'll see if that can make the difference for them. I mean, I, I, I was already like a pretty strong Clippers believer. So as I was joking with you last night with like the Larry David gif, it's like, I'm balancing my Clippers belief against my Rondo skepticism and it's got me all confused. Well, confusing times in the NBA. Not confusing, the Bucks' future. They're locked in to Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton, and now Drew Holiday. A four-year, $160 million extension that keeps him under team control in Milwaukee through 2024, plus a 2024-2025 player option. That means Holiday... Giannis Middleton now all under team control through at least 2023. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think we're both Drew fans. Uh, to be honest, I think it's hard not to be a Drew Holiday fan. He's one of the great guys, mm-hmm. you know, in the NBA off the court as well. Excellent two-way player, elite perimeter defender, having a great year. I mean, he's averaging roughly what 17 5 5 and 2 on 51 39 82 shooting for a contender that is a lot better with him than they are without him you know i think he does even if it's slightly does raise their ceiling in the playoffs they definitely felt they had to get an extension done no matter the figure because of what they gave up for him with all the picks and and the future draft capital and stuff and i say all that and yet I don't know, man. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this deal. What were they supposed to do? No, I, again, I, I, I just said I like I understand that they definitely felt they had to do this, and they did have to do it given yeah. what they gave up for them. Like there was, well, what's your what's your hesitation then? It's just the, I think it's the for me it's the thought that like okay this is what it is now like it's it's Giannis it's Middleton it's Drew you're not going to have the ability to really improve this roster over the next few years while these guys are on your team. You can play along the margins, but barring something really unforeseen, you're not landing another impact player. And it's just, it's the thought for me of like trying to project that forward in the next few years. And I know it's crazy. We don't even know what's going to happen this year, but I don't know. I just, 
I understand why they did it. I also can't bring myself to a point where I see this being a championship trio. Uh, well, I think they are and can be. Like, I, I do, they're not the favorite this year, but I've said before, and I still very much believe. And look, it's going to depend on seeding, right? Like the, the Sixers could wind up in the in the one seed, and the Bucks could have to play the Nets in round two, but. Assuming the bracket doesn't shake out that way, assuming they don't have to see Brooklyn until the conference finals, like they're very much my pick to make it to the conference finals. And I think that they can give Brooklyn a series. And Holiday is like crucial to everything that mm-hmm. they're doing this year. He, he's been a key to unlocking a little bit more of their stylistic versatility, which I think we both agree is like a really important thing for them uh, after their playoff flameouts the last couple of years, which were incited in part by their inability to adapt and their lack of, of stylistic flexibility. So I think he's been huge in that regard. I honestly think that he overall has been their second best player this year. And I've seen so many people clowning the bucks for overpaying drew. And, you know, for one thing, I think it's overstated because that deal is incentive laden and it's actually more like a four year, $135 million deal with bonuses that can bump it up to 160, which it's like if he hits those benchmarks, like if he gets to those bonuses, then that's a really good thing for the Bucks, right? That, that means that he's performing extremely well for them. And I, I just like there's got to be some measure of consistency here, right? Because everybody clowned Bucks ownership and management for like cheaping out on the Brogdon thing. And now they're they're slagging Bucks management for going above and beyond and apparently overpaying Holiday, which it's actually not an overpay because if Holiday had hit the free agent market this summer, I guarantee you he would have gotten basically this exact contract and he he could have made more like this was not his true max. This was the max they could have offered him on an extension. But if he was an unrestricted free agent, another team could have given him a bigger contract than this. And it's very likely that that would have happened because he basically would have been the headliner of this free agent class. And if he had hit free agency and if like Miami had opened up the cap space to sign him to this exact deal, I feel like people would be celebrating the heat for doing that. But because it's the bucks and because Holiday is tied to, you know, at least in some people's minds, I guess, tied to the Brogdon decision, it's taken on this kind of negative connotation where I really think the only takeaway here is, look, they rolled the dice because they gave up a ton of draft capital to get Drew Holiday, banking on the fact that it would be enough to convince Giannis to re-up and that they could then convince Drew to extend with them. That was a home run. Because Giannis extended, Drew extended, Holiday has been awesome. The Bucks have been outstanding with him on the floor. Everything's gone about as well as they possibly could have hoped. So to me, it's like, this is great. This is a great thing for Holiday, who has absolutely earned that bag. And it's a great thing for the Bucks, who have locked in the guy that I think is their second best player for another four years. And it's like, yeah, he's 30, but... Like, look at the way that players age in this. 30's not what it used to That's be. That's what I'm saying, man. Like, Chris Paul's still out here dominating at, at yeah. 36, you know? And and at Holiday, like, to me, hasn't shown any kind of slippage at either end of the floor. He's probably having his best season right now, at least offensively. And, you know, what is the most valuable commodity in the NBA right now? It's a guy who can play point guard on offense and be a wing on defense. And Holiday is not the ideal version of that player archetype. Like, he has limitations as a point guard on offense. He's an okay passer, not a very good passer. He's a pretty good shooter, not a great one. Although, honestly, <laughs> like his shooting this season has been... Yeah. Pretty incredible. And, and 51, 39, 82. Right. And on not a, on decent volume. And, and like, you might have expected that kind of coming into the season because you think, like, oh, he's going to be getting wide open spot up looks. But he's shooting 39% on pull up threes, which is the highest mark of his career, and like 55% on pull up twos. Like, his pull up jump shooting has actually been out of this world. And again, like, 
okay, he's not the perfect version of that archetype on defense either. Like he's an unbelievable one-on-one defender, but if you're calling him a wing defender, he's like a little bit undersized, you know, he's super strong, but he's also six, four. So is he the ideal person, you know, to throw it like LeBron or Kawhi? Maybe not, but I still do think he fits into that archetype as like a guy who can essentially run your offense and guard basically anybody one through three and maybe even one through four at the defensive end. Like that is such a valuable commodity and he has fit in so well with Giannis and Middleton. Like I can't think of this as anything other than a home run for the Bucks. And I think that team, that front office, that fan base, like they're, they should be doing somersaults right now. And and that's my only takeaway from this. The question for me is, would you have before they traded for holiday and thought they had traded for Bogdan Bogdanovich. I know the, the easy answer is if it meant Giannis is resigning, yes, I would take it. It's a win. But bring yourself to like before they made the moves for Holiday and Bogdanovich, right? And if someone had said to you, uh, okay, you already know Giannis is staying. And now I'm going to tell you like what the Bucks core is going to be for the majority of his prime once they lock him up and it's going to be him Middleton and Drew Holiday would you have reacted to that with like damn that's a like well done bucks that's a home run or would you have said okay that's good they're better than what they are now but because eh. I would have reacted to the latter not the former but again it's and, and I don't want to relitigate the Chris Paul trade that they didn't make but it, you got to think about what the alternative is. You know what I mean? Right. And and like maybe they could have gotten a better player, you know, with the, with the trade package that they wound up sending out to get Holiday. But I don't know. They like they got one of the thirty best players in the league. You know, wherever you want to slot Holiday in, I think whatever top thirty, I feel like is a fair distinction. And he has fit in exceptionally well. And I think we're not really going to be able to properly litigate this until we see what it looks like in the playoffs. And if they totally flop in the playoffs in like similar fashion to what happened last year, we can come back on this pod and we can discuss why it happened and wonder whether, you know, they have made a mistake by locking themselves into a core that has a very limited ceiling. I don't think that's true. I think this is a, a three-man core that is capable of winning a championship with the right pieces around it. Do the Bucks now have the flexibility to put those pieces around that three-man core? You know, that's going to put it over the top. Maybe not. Like, is a lot now riding on the development of Dante Divincenzo? You know, or like the trade value potentially. A lot of, lot of weight Lopez. on my Pison's shoulders, man. So that's what I'm saying. Like they, they like you talked about the marginal moves now that that they need mm-hmm. to make, and like. That's what it is going to come down to. Like, it's going to come down to marginal stuff. Like, how good can DiVincenzo get? And how long can Lopez stay good? Or, you know, can they flip Lopez for, like, another wing player uh, that makes sense for them? Like, that's... And? And? You're missing something when you talk about the marginal gains they can make. Guy that's... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. On the, on, the, on the sidelines, of course. Of right. course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so let let me actually turn that around on you then. So, okay, what to you would constitute a successful Bucks season this year? This year, and is there anything that they could do short of making the finals or short of winning a championship? Is there anything that they can do that you think would merit keeping Mike Budenholzer aboard moving forward? <sighs> I think it's more than just the ultimate result, right? Like if, I mean, obviously they win a championship, fine. If they make the finals in order to beat Brooklyn, you got to keep them. But even if like, okay, say they have a tough East final against Brooklyn, right? Goes six or seven games. It's really competitive. They lose to a team that the Bucks can play out of their mind and still lose to the Nets because the collection of absolute star talent they have is like generational. But if Mike Budenholzer has a good postseason along the way, you know, like if he is making the right adjustments and pressing the right buttons, and if he seems to have learned from past mistakes, if there's more variance in the Bucks' offense, 
if you know they leverage their additional switch ability this is like if, if they do all those things and they come up short and you can at the end of the playoffs say like okay no coach obviously no coach is perfect i'm not saying he has to have a perfect postseason that's never going to happen for a coach but if at the end of a good playoff run which i think for them has to be minimum conference finals right and i think you'd agree with yes. that like i so if say they go to at least the conference finals and at the end of the postseason we can sit here and say mike budenholzer had a good playoffs there's nothing really he could have done di- like to change the outcome of this. He they didn't lose anything on the margins because of their coaching. He learned from his, like I think then like I, then I think they should keep him. And that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's ultimately results based. Like I'm not going to sit here and say, "Oh, if they don't make the finals, he should get fired" because they could not make the finals and he could have a good postseason, right? So I think a lot of it is like process based as well. And in terms of just what constitutes a good season for them, yeah, I think they go to at least make the conference finals and be very competitive in that conference finals. And look, I think my my concern with them, like all jokes aside, just still comes down to the fact I'm not convinced that they have a championship level shot creator. And I could be proven like I'm, you know, just like you said, you like when you're proven wrong about this stuff. I am too. Like, look, if if Giannis... uh, I don't know, explodes or all of a sudden finds consistency and confidence in a jumper that, you know, he's developed over the course of the season. If Middleton, who, look, Chris Middleton, if you look at him at his best, and especially during the regular season, and even in some moments in the playoffs in the last few years, he might be able to be that championship level shot creator on a team with Giannis Antetokounmpo, you know, where he doesn't have the traditional overall burden of that championship shot creator. So by no means am I saying they absolutely don't have that guy. They've got no chance. I just, I'm not convinced they have that guy yet. And it's very rare that you can talk about a team as good as the Bucs with the two-time reigning MVP, with two legitimate all-stars and a borderline all-star, and still come out of that conversation saying, I'm not convinced they have a championship level shot creator. They're just a very unique team in that way. But to their credit, look, they're one of four teams with the top 10 offense and top 10 defense right now. They haven't been as dominant, obviously, in the regular season. And, you know, last couple of years, they've had the best record in the in the league and just absolutely obliterated teams. This year, they're third in the East. And I think they're three games back a second as well. Like they, they seem like they might settle into that third seed. Giannis has missed the last couple of games. But they are also better equipped for the playoffs. So, yeah, let's see what happens. I, again, I, I completely understand why they did this Drew deal. I think Drew Holiday is a big, big, big money player. Like, I, For me, it's not so much that I think they, they shouldn't have done this or they overpaid or anything like that. It's just, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, we knew it was coming and, and now it's here. And it's like, now this is just what it is. Like, okay, this is their team, you know? And it's just kind of like processing that and thinking about like, look, if Giannis re-signed, they already like won half the battle. I think they would have taken almost any scenario where Giannis, like, and seriously, that because he's a generational talent in the in the most star driven league. And if you can get that guy to give you more than a half or a half decade commitment, you sign the hell up for that every day of the week. Again, it's just like now that it's it's all settled and it's here, and now you can just look at it and be like, okay, this is the trio. You know, it's just you're. Not, I'm just not as convinced of it as I usually would be for. A team this good, if that makes sense. Yeah, which is fair. I mean, it's definitely fair to have doubts about this team, given the way that we saw them flame out, particularly last year. I actually think the way they lost to the Raptors has sort of overstated the, the their flaws, at least like for the team that they had two years ago. Like that team, to me, and I've said this many times, but I, I can't say it enough was closer to winning a championship than I think almost anybody gives it credit for. And to take that as evidence that like Giannis just doesn't have it in him to go all the way in the playoffs or that Mike Budenholzer, like for all his flaws is like incapable of winning a championship, you know, because of his, his stubbornness and his, his rigidity, like they, they have run into some issues uh, and there are certain things that need to change for them to get over that hump, especially this year. But I think to take that as evidence that they can't do it would be very misguided. And there are a couple things that I think are going to be important as far as like, okay, these are encouraging signs. Can they carry over? 
One of them is Holiday's shooting out of the pick and roll, which, like I said, has been a really pleasant surprise. And if he can keep doing that, then suddenly, you know, okay, maybe on their own, like Holiday, Middleton, are those, you know, championship level shot creators in a vacuum? Maybe not if you're comparing them to like LeBron or Steph Curry, but together, you know, having two guys who can run pick and roll, who are threats to pull up, who can play make, you know, in Holiday's case, who can kind of bully his way to the rim, you know, so, so that's, that's a big thing, whether, whether his, whether Holiday's shooting off of the bounce can sustain itself. The other one is like Giannis gets better as a passer every single year. And I think he is making quicker reads this year, kind of bending the defense in a way that I don't think he has fully done in the past. And that's super important too, because when teams are loading up on him, like if he can get that ball out of his hand super quickly, if he's diagnosing where the help is coming from and getting the ball moving around. Like that's, that's a big thing for that offense as well. And a big part of the reason that they've gotten gummed up in the past, I think is that his reads were like just a split second too slow. And that can make all the difference, right? That gives the defense time to reset. And that's, I think what's led to their half court offense sort of getting bogged down in the past. And we'll see if that can change this year as well. But look, I I like their chance to get to the conference finals. I think that they would have a shot against the Nets. They might need something to go wrong for Brooklyn in order for that to happen, but shit goes wrong for title favorites all the time. And if if there's an opening, I don't really see a reason why they wouldn't be able to capitalize on it. Yeah, look, I think the only teams that can realistically say to themselves like, okay, we, we can win the championship just by playing our best basketball are the Nets and the healthy Lakers. Like I think other than that, no matter how good a team is, you need something to go wrong for a rival, you know, or a matchup to break your way to win a championship. And so I, I definitely wouldn't hold that against them. Um, I do want to say that I did uh, very much enjoy your tweet that the Bucks traded the best player in the PJ Tucker trade. And I assume you were talking about Tory Craig. Yeah, I just don't. And I didn't fully get it at the time, but I think when it comes to stuff like a, a player being out of a, of a team's rotation, I do tend to just give the benefit of the doubt to the team, right? Because we're not there. We're not in the practices. It's easy enough to say like, this is stupid. This guy should be playing. But I, I tend to take the position that there's probably a reason that the team isn't playing this guy. Yeah, so much goes on behind the scenes, man, that, you know, even we aren't always privy to, but, you know, not to get on our high horse and be like, hey, you fans without credentials don't understand, but like, seriously, like, there, like, so much goes on behind the scenes over the course of a long season, and it's never as black and white as you think it is when a guy you think should be playing isn't. Right, so having said that, I, I was, you know, always sort of curious why Tory Craig wasn't playing, like, just could not get on the floor in Milwaukee. And, you know, we speculated about, okay, if they're closing games with Giannis at the five, who's the fifth guy who's filling in that lineup, you know, around Giannis, Holiday, Middleton, and presumably DiVincenzo. And I would always sort of throw Torrey Craig's name in there and be like, yeah, like he's kind of an offensive zero. Teams aren't going to respect his jumper, but if they want to downsize and basically go to like a more switchy approach where, they're not going to lose anything at the defensive end. Like that's the guy that you plug in. And now he's playing in Phoenix and he honestly looks great in the role that they're asking him to play. And that just makes me wonder like what went wrong in Milwaukee that led to him just being out of the rotation. And, and in that deal, like they give him up for nothing essentially to get, you know, PJ Tucker in the door. And I'm a big PJ Tucker fan. And I don't think that he's like totally cooked. I think that he has something to offer them. And if they are going to focus on switching a little bit more in the playoffs, close games with Giannis at the five, I think they could do worse than having PJ Tucker be that fifth guy who all they need him to do offensively is stand in the corner and knock down like 40% of his corner threes and then defensively do what he does as the bowling ball who can switch 
basically one through five. And whether he can still switch one through five maybe is an open question, but I have faith that come playoff time, assuming that he's healthy, which, what does he have now? Like a calf injury? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. um, If he's healthy come playoff time, I think that he'll be able to ratchet it up enough that he's going to be a positive contributor for, you know, whatever it is, 15 to 20 minutes a game. Like, that's all they need from him. But it just does make me wonder, like, they had this guy in Torrey Craig, who I think fits with what they're trying to do pretty well, and he just couldn't get into the mix at all. Meanwhile, they're shelling out a ton of minutes to, like, Tanasi Antetokounmpo, who, like, credit to him, he's turned himself into a player. Like, he can play. He's a a high-energy guy. He's an irritant. He's a high-energy guy. Like, he makes stuff happen but I mean like they're giving a ton of minutes to him they're they're playing Bryn Forbes a ton of minutes and like meanwhile they have Torrey Craig just chilling on the bench and like now he's making an impact in Phoenix it's just just curious is all yeah look the Nassus again you know credit him making himself a player like I said super high energy guy sometimes I I love high energy guys but I think he's one of the guys that actually needs to rein his energy in sometimes (laughs) like but he was driving Luca absolutely crazy last yeah, man. I don't know if you I know. saw that, but um, but he should not have been playing more minutes than Tory Craig. I'm sorry. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, from a big money extension and a team thinking about a championship in the short term, to a most definitely not big money extension and a team thinking about potentially competing in 2047 (laughs) from drew holiday and the milwaukee bucks to moses brown and the oklahoma city thunder very similar to the deal lou dort signed last year which has quickly become one of the best not not one of them but probably the best bang for your buck um outside of superstar maxes in the nba so moses brown signed a four year 6.8 million dollar extension years two to four are non-guaranteed and or team options uh, neither he nor lou dort will even have a two million dollar cap hit one season over the next four years which is mind-boggling i mean look brown hasn't showed everything dort did obviously last year so i'm not saying it's now guaranteed the, the thunder are going to have two of the best bang for your buck deals in the league but they managed to do it again. I know you were very hot about it uh, on Twitter. <laughs> Maybe hot's not the right word. I don't know. You were very animated about it, or as animated as one can be on Twitter when this deal went down. So why don't you give me your thoughts on the Moses Brown deal, and then we can just talk about the Thunder in general, because I think there is a lot to talk about for a team that's as bad as they are. Well, look, it's hard to blame the Thunder for doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is like essentially amassing as much team control as they can maintaining financial flexibility and and getting the most value that they possibly can out of the players that they have on their roster. And like, given that it's a salary cap league, like they, you always have to do a dollars to production calculation and come up with what you think is the best possible deal from their perspective. I mean, that's what they did. Like that's undeniably a great deal for the thunder it's not a great deal for Moses Brown and he, he signed it, I guess for a reason. He didn't think that he was going to be able to get that kind of guaranteed money. Maybe he was getting bad advice from his agent. Like I think if you're going to point the finger at anybody in this, like that's who you point the finger at. Just, just like in the case of Lou Dort agreed, which is like, you know, why are their agents encouraging them to sign these deals where you're signing away three years of your career essentially you know and that's the thing like it's not even about the amount it's more just like they've put the next four years of their careers entirely in the hands of the thunder organization where that's like they're not even getting guaranteed money and usually if a team wants that kind of optionality 
to be able to sign a four-year deal with three of those years being essentially team-controlled, be it a non-guarantee or a team option, like the team has to pay for that kind of optionality. Usually it's not like they're getting that while also only paying the player a million and a half dollars a year. Like that's pretty absurd. And so that was what was disappointing to me about it. And it's also more so, I think, just a reaction to the way that deals like that get celebrated, where it's like, (laughs) it's not a good thing for these players. And it's not the kind of thing that we should be celebrating. Players should get paid what they're worth. And that's, uh, it's just like not something that I love to see. And, And I think generally there has maybe been a bit of a backlash to just like the way that the Thunder have been doing business. And as much as we can sit here and talk about how their future is extremely bright because they have a budding superstar in Shea Gilgis-Alexander and a bazillion draft picks, you know, in the next seven odd years that like they're really not even going to be able to use all of them. It's... I don't know, man. Like they, their practices are towing the line between <laughs> respectable and shady. And from from the kind of, you know, you can call them the hinky specials, those those predatory contracts to the way that they have shut Al Horford down despite him being perfectly healthy for basically half of the season. It's uh I don't know, man. It's it's just like tough to get on board, I think, with how the Thunder are going about this. And I really do wonder where the league sits on all this because they've been open about the fact that they don't like tanking. They want to try and legislate it out in whatever way they can. They change the lottery odds. They, I mean, they'll, they'll come out and find teams for resting players for national TV games, even if it's on like a back-to-back and the team has a perfectly good reason for wanting to do so. And yet they're okay with a team sitting a perfectly healthy player for half the season. I, I don't know. I, I just find it strange that they could be okay with this. Man, I'm I'm so conflicted about the Thunder, and I have been for a while because, as you know, I was pretty all in on last year's Thunder team. I, you know, I wrote a piece early last season about how I didn't want them to uh, do a deadline sell-off because even though they went into last season trying to tank, they ended up with a really good, exciting team that I remain steadfast in my belief that that team uh, with Chris Paul and Shea Gilgis-Alexander was a lot closer to legitimate contention than they themselves seem to believe they were or anyone else believed they were. And that given the incredible draft capital they already had and the young talent already on the roster... I remain convinced that team could have made a win-now trade to supplement Paul and Gilgis Alexander and been, at worst, a fringe contender this season and still would have had enough draft capital left over to still take care of their future and then some. They punted on that to tank this season. Then, when they realized that Shea is good enough and there's enough young talent and even kind of veteran IQ on this year's roster to still not fully properly tank. And that even though they weren't good, they were still competitive enough to, as of two weeks ago, only be like a game and a half out of the final play-in spot in the West. They shut down Al Horford for the rest of the season, even though he was having his best season in like two or three years and they couldn't find a trade partner for him. They'll probably be able to find one this summer, given how well he played and, you know, one less year on that contract. You think so? They shut him down. What's that? You think so? You think they'll find a trade partner for him? Okay, sorry, let me rephrase that. I think it is much more likely they will find a trade partner this summer than it would have been this year with the extra year still on that deal. But I think it's possible. I would have said it was impossible at the beginning of the year. I now think it's possible. He's shut down. Shea Gilgis-Alexander, look, as professional members of the media, we don't want to get into the business of assuming teams are lying. We, We cannot put that out there. He's been... Ruled out for quote-unquote significant time as of two weeks ago due to plantar fasciitis. Uh, I'm just going to say that based on the way this season is going, I'm not convinced that he needs to be shut down uh, indefinitely. They are shamelessly tanking. So there's a lot of me that says, you know what? Screw you guys. You punted on the ability to compete for something significant in the short term. 
And you still could have had a long-term. You punted on that to go all in on this long-term vision. You're dishing out these predatory contracts, which I know we can't technically fault you for, but it still just feels dirty and sketchy. You say you're like about the future and building this good young team, but then a pretty good story in Hamadou Diallo you trade him before you have to pay him for Sfi Mikhailuk and a 2027 second round pick as if you don't have enough like future second rounders. And all of that stuff makes me want to root against them and hope that they get like the fifth pick in the lottery for the next X amount of years. They don't get another star. Shea ends up leaving in a few like, and then there's the other half of me that looks at the potential of this roster and just wants to see it succeed because it's so damn fun and has such a high ceiling like uh, we've spoken many times this year about how ridiculous the season Shea Gilders Alexander is having and maybe if it's over has had this year and what he's done you know at his volume to be as efficient as he was with zero offensive talent around him was incredible I, I, I agree with you I think he's a budding superstar Lou Dort you know how can you not love him Brown we already talked about I think could be a piece for them and is now locked up Baisley has his moments. Um, Theo Maladon, I think, has been solid recently, at least showing some flash. He's still super young. I know you like uh, Kenrich Williams. We can talk about Poku. I think Alexei Pokashevsky, I, I, like, I think this kid could be special. We, we can talk about him. But they have so much damn young talent with a budding superstar at the head of that and Shea Gilles-Alexander. If the tank goes as planned you know, over the next month and a half, they will have a real chance to add another franchise changer in this year's draft and still have an insane amount of draft capital and young talent to turn into maybe another superstar or whatever draft another great player. And like, so, so this is my dilemma and my just, I'm so conflicted about them because I, I don't know whether to root against them for the shameless way they've gone about competing or to just kind of like, you know, look at it from the player's perspective and be like, no, I just, I enjoy the young talent they have. I want to see this young talent thrive together, not because I support what management has done, but just because I like these players and I want them to grow together and thrive together. I'm very conflicted about it. And also the other thing I'm conflicted about is like, you can root for these guys to thrive together, but who's to say one of them that, you know, we're going to fall in love with, isn't going to get traded for some underwhelming future draft pick before they have to pay them. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's like, how many of these guys are actually going to be here long term? You know, and you mentioned, right. I think you said they have a ton of young talent, but like, do they really? Or, right. or do they just have a bunch of hazy outlines of like potentially good players right. down the road? I, I just, I mean, I, I think eventually at some point they're going to have to decide, okay, it's time to hit the accelerator. And that's when maybe they look to make like a consolidation trade where they take a bunch of their draft capital and maybe a couple of their young players and, and actually make a swing and try to get another star because quite literally, like they don't even have enough roster spots to develop all of the first round picks that they're going to have in the next six drafts. So at some point, I guess that's going to happen, but like outside of Shea, I mean, we can start, I guess, by talking about Poku because I think maybe we differ a little bit on where we are with him but when you say you think he can be special, what do you see that looking like? You know, what does the idealized version of Pokashevsky look like to you? Because obviously the flashes are there, but I don't think that I'm convinced. <laughs> and I will say, I, I watched three, four, whatever. I, I watched a few Thunder games early in the season and... Without exaggeration, I think that version of Pokashevsky was like the worst NBA player that I've ever watched. He, he couldn't shoot at all. He could barely dribble. He was lost. I mean, he's a twig out there. He's like seven feet, 190 pounds. And I was just like, man, <laughs> like this is really rough. And you watch him now and it's like there's way, way more polish. He's shooting the ball better. He looks a little bit more confident handling it. And I do think that is the leeway that you afford yourself when you don't care about winning games. You can give a player like that as long a leash as you feel like they need. 
give them some time and space to spread their wings and explore their capabilities and just get a little bit more comfortable with reps. And I understand from that perspective, but it's like, (laughs) I just don't know with Poku. Like he's not shy. I'll give him that. And I think to his credit, like the fact that he is so willing to let it fly from three point range has really helped him because guys actually close out on him despite the fact that he's shooting 29% from three and he's gotten pretty good at attacking those closeouts and he drives the ball somewhat slowly, but it's actually pretty effective. He's got, you know, a little decent hesitation dribble. Like I think he'll be able to play, but as far as like him being special, I don't know that I see it aside from the fact that like he's really tall and has some ball skills, but I don't know if that's enough when, like, I don't think he's ever going to be a, an impact defender. And I just don't know if I see it all coming together for him. But what, what do you what do you see him turning into? I mean, who the hell knows what he'll actually turn into? He's such a young player, but he's the youngest player in the NBA right now. But uh, the skill set, between the skill set at his size and just the leaps he's already taken in a few months in the NBA, you mentioned him looking like maybe the worst player you've ever watched on an NBA court, what, three months ago? And now, does he still have moments where he looks completely lost out there and like he doesn't belong? Yeah, absolutely. He's a 19-year-old kid in his first NBA season. But those moments are fewer and further between. And there are a lot more moments now where he already looks like, at worst, an NBA player. And that leap to me in your first season at his age with his size and skill set is not insignificant. And there are a lot of great, great players who looked really, really bad in their rookie season, sometimes in their second seasons, and who didn't start to progress as early as Poku is now progressing. And I just think that that like that combination of size and skill, like there he's a seven foot nineteen year old who does have a handle. He you know, you mentioned him not being shy. He physically looks like a deer in headlights, but he doesn't play like it. You know, he seems to believe that he belongs and kudos to him for believing that at his age. But yeah, man, just like you think about it, like a seven footer who can put the ball on the floor, who can shoot it. I know the percentages aren't there yet, but like, you know, his scouting report, everything coming into the NBA, this is a guy who can shoot. I think his last six games, he's, he's, close to 38% three-point shooting. Obviously, small sample size, but still, when when a guy has a reputation for being a shooter, when he, as a prospect, was a shooter and didn't shoot well its first two or three months in the NBA and is now starting to shoot well, I tend to believe he's the guy he's been the majority of his basketball playing life and not the guy he was his first two months in the NBA. So we're talking about a seven-footer who can put the ball on the floor, can handle it, can shoot, as you mentioned, is already showing a willingness and an ability to, t- to attack closeouts here and there. I think this kid's combination of size and skill is like almost unbeffing leavable. And there, there have been moments, especially in the last like three weeks, where I've like been pretty blown away. And he's left me pretty awe-inspired. And like I've come away thinking like th- that, as I said, I think this kid could be really special. Do you want to hear his plus minuses from his last 12 games? Oh, listen, he last night, I don't know if you signed him, uh, him against the Cavs. He was awful last night yeah. against the Cavs. Bef- before you do read off those plus minuses, I, will, I, I mentioned he's the youngest player in the NBA. He is younger than Cade Cunningham and almost all of the prospects that are expected to be drafted in a few months. So I will say this. like if Am I saying he's Cade Cunningham? No, but... If someone had told you that there's a guy coming into this draft who already has professional experience in Europe, who is a seven-footer with ball handling and shooting skills, who is already capable of, on any given night, going for 20-plus in the NBA, sign me the hell up. I might take him over any non-Cunningham prospect this year, and there are some good ones. He also looks exactly like J.E. Skeets. I think we should point that out. Um, that is, I, you know what? I think that's very disrespectful to Skeets. I don't think he looks anything like Skeets. I, someone said that he looked like a, like an Eastern European like EDM DJ, and I feel like that's the vibe. Like I think that's the vibe Poku gives off. I think it was uh, Jared Dubin who said he looks exactly like a cross between Skeets and the robot from iRobot. 
Amazing. Um, which I think Amazing. is actually pretty on point. Um, last 12 games, minus 27, plus one, minus 27, minus 42, minus 32, minus 14, minus seven, minus eight, minus three, minus four, minus 25, minus 30. <laughs> so obviously a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Thunder are, you know, a lot of nights he's like kind of trotting out a G League team, right? There's no Dort, there's no Shea, there's no Baisley, no Horford. You know, like this was their starting lineup last night. It was uh, Theo Maladon, who I agree. Like, I-, I think he has some interesting tools. He's got a lot of shake to his game. No craft as a finisher right now, but like he can get into the teeth of the defense. And like, I- I'm very interested in what he can be as like a, a point guard with some size. Um, but he's not there right now. <laughs> he's starting at point guard for them. Svi is starting at shooting guard. Kenrich Williams at small forward, Poku at the four, and Moses Brown at the five. So maybe not surprising that we're seeing those kind of plus minus numbers from the youngest player in the league, but I just don't know. I mean, I look I look up and down this roster and I'm like, I could not tell you how many of these guys will actually be on the team two years from now, you know, let alone three, four, five years from now when maybe they're really ready to to compete. I don't know where Poku will be in two, three, four, five years now from a team perspective, but in terms of where he will be in the NBA, in terms of like his standing and his ability, like I, I'm telling you right now, I truly believe this kid could be special. Okay, 0.5 all-star games over under for Poku's career. Career? Yeah. Over. So you think he will be an all-star at some point in time? I think he will be an all-star one day. I, I can't, look, again, am, am I, I guarantee you what I bet my life? No, of course not. But do I think if he just develops like as he should and takes advantage of the skill set he has, you know, the, yeah, like ends up in the right situation, whether it's OKC or elsewhere. Yes, I believe if you're giving me 0.5, you're essentially asking me, do you think he will be an all-star one day or can be an all-star one day? And I think, yes, I, I think it's crazy to say he can't be given the combination of size and skill he has and what he's already shown. 0.5 all NBA teams in his career over under. Like any of the three all NBA teams. Yeah. Just need him to hit, make it once. One time. Over. Over 0.5. He'll do it once. A lot of really good players have never made an all-NBA team. Uh, I know. You're you're know. you're a believer. I'm a huge believer. Again, I one of the most impressive things to me is just what we talk like the progression. I agree with you that look, I, I even said last night, and forget three months from now, there are nights like last night where he looks like he might not be an NBA player. But I think the fact that he was that consistently that three months ago, and now that's like once every few games. And once every few games, he's also putting up like 25 and 10 efficiently. Like, man, that, that is pretty phenomenal progression within a rookie year in a bad situation as a 19-year-old who is the youngest player in the league and younger than some of the top prospects coming in a few in a few months. And I will say, I, I do think the willingness to just play through his mistakes and not at least to watch him lose any confidence like he just still goes out there and lets it fly, right? And and yeah. doesn't seem to dwell on his mistakes too much. And maybe that does just come down to like the low pressure environment that he's in right now. But I think that's a really important thing that probably bodes well for him, right? Is the fact that his mentality seems to be like he's not going to get discouraged. He believes in himself clearly. And he's just going to keep going out there and, and trying to do what he believes himself to be capable of. And I think that's that is what you want to see, right? If you throw yeah. somebody into the fire like that, at his age, with his very raw tool set, you want to see him playing like he believes in himself and not losing any confidence, even as he fumbles through some early career mistakes. Yeah. Like I said, I've never seen someone physically resemble a deer in the headlights so much, and yet everything about his demeanor resembles someone very much not a deer in the headlights. That said, I... Cannot in good conscience root for the Thunder to succeed, mainly because they traded my guy, Hamadou. I feel you. I mean, again, we who knows when we'll be able to judge this team based on the fact that they seem to be building for a future some of us may never see. <laughs> yeah. Like world is gonna be underwater it, by the time the Thunder right. are ready to cash in some yeah. of these draft assets. 
Yeah. Shay is going to be starring in Space Jam 3 <laughs> while playing for a franchise that doesn't even exist yet um, in a 40-team NBA. And the Thunder will still be churning assets they acquired in a Shea trade into future draft picks. Um, I will say Diallo's been been playing uh, pretty well in Detroit. So Yeah, he's a good young player. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know what? Svi, who was having a kind of rough season with the Pistons, has actually been pretty good since he got traded to the Thunder. So maybe they actually just like Svi and thought that yep. he could be a player for them and it wasn't about money. I'm skeptical of that, but... Because my feeling is just like, yeah, okay, like Svi can be a useful player, but I just feel like that's a player type that you can find anywhere, you know? Like you can find a player like that in the G League or like in the latter rounds of the draft without issue. I, I think Diallo is like a little bit more dynamic and, and gives you something, I don't know, that's, a, that's like a little bit more unique in the league, I think. Like a real Absolutely. attacking guard who can get to the rim pretty much at will, super fast, great defender. I just like a, a kind of cookie cutter stretch four, like Svi Mahaliuk, like, you know, no disrespect to him, but. Or a dime a dozen. It's just, it's just like an uninspiring trade to me that uh, has me scratching my head still. All right, unless you have anything else to add on this fine Friday morning, Wolfon, should I get to a couple fan shout-outs? Please do. Yeah, that's. I don't want to waste another word on the Thunder until the draft. Yeah, that, that's a good call. I'm I'm sick of the Thunder until the draft as well. Unless you want to talk Poku, then I'm always down. Um, all right, there are four shout-outs and a special shout-out right now, banked. We've got so. One of them is going to get a special shout. It's actually going to be his second shout out, but I'll, I'll explain why. And then there's four new shout outs banked. How many do you want me to do today? How many are we saving in the bank? Uh, why don't we do two today and we'll bank okay. a couple. Okay. So the first one, the, the, the bonus one, not included in the two. Jacob, I gave him a shout out uh, maybe a couple months ago. He had hit me up on Instagram. Anyway, the reason we wanted to shout out Jacob again is to let him know, Jacob, we did get your gifts. You sent them to the score. We did receive them. HR reached out to me yesterday, even opened it virtually uh, with me on a Zoom call. Thank you very much for the gifts. He also had a handwritten note in there, uh, referred to Wolf on as the Pacers fan and wanted me to ensure that I get him one of these two gifts as well and not hog both of them. And then thanked us for all that we do. So uh, Jacob, thank you. And thank all of our Pound the Rock listeners. Uh, we very much appreciate the fact that people seem to appreciate our show and the work we do. Um, you know, I think we're both, we would both uh, acknowledge that while we both work hard, we're also very fortunate to have the jobs we do and to get to make a living writing and talking about basketball and the NBA. So, you know, again, th thank you to our listeners and uh, the fact that us talking about ball can bring any sort of entertainment or enjoyment <laughs> to uh, to your life in this crazy world. We appreciate that. In terms of the two new shout outs for this week, the first one, uh, I this is not a bias for me just because it is actually a friend and an old high school friend, but Randall Furman, who I did go to high school with, frequently actually shares our content. And a couple weeks ago, shared the podcast on Instagram and even shared it with a cash emoji and a wolf emoji wow. telling people to tune in to pound the rock and describe. So again, I get that, you know, it might seem kind of shady because I'm shouting out a friend and an old high school friend, but I do think when people are putting that much effort into sharing our content and, and even hitting wolf on with a wolf emoji, I think that is worth a shout out. So shout out Randall. And our second shout out this week is a really special one. And it is, Someone who reached out with a comment on SoundCloud, usual caveat here, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Ascanio Galvez, who is a Lakers fan in Honduras, said he's been a listener for almost two years and he loves the podcast. So shout out Ascanio and any fans, international fans we have, any fans we have in Honduras. And again, thank you to all of our fans. Uh, we very much appreciate you. I think us doing these like fan call outs and shout outs has become one of the most enjoyable parts of the show for us. And just, it's cool to see people reaching out from literally all over the world saying they like the show, uh, humbling for us as well. So thank you to Jacob for the gifts. Thanks to Randall and Ascanio, um, for the love. And I hope you enjoy these few seconds that we're shouting you out on the show. And like I said, we still have two more banked for next week, but, uh, 
we hope that the show runs longer than one more episode. So as usual, if you're a fan of the show, hit us up on social media. Tell us where you're listening from, how long you've been a listener. Give us some feedback, what you like, what you don't like. And we will get you a shout out on a future episode. For that, unless Joe Wolfon has anything else to add about Alexei Pokashevsky, the Thunder, the Bucks, Istanbul's turkeys, <laughs> I think that just about does it for us this week. Is that correct, Wolfon? I've said my piece, man. All right. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock. <laughs>